All right. Now, let's jump into God's word. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Words will be on the screen, or you can follow along in your pew Bible or your own Bible. We've been doing this series called Credible Stories. We look at the story of the birth of Christ and how it gives basis for our Christian creed, or the Apostles' Creed. We've been reading this passage, Matthew 1, 18 through 25, and we are there again today. So let's read together. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. By now, I'm sure you've heard Mariah Carey, All I Want for Christmas, or Bing Crosby, or any, other, the, any of the other litany of songs that are part of that Christmas playlist. Which, by the way, Mariah Carey still makes about $3 million a year from that song. Not from performing it, but because it gets played in the mall and all the other places that we hear it on TV or whatever. But the highest grossing song of all time, of course, is White Christmas by Bing Crosby. In fact, I think it's the highest grossing song, period, not just Christmas. Go figure. But when you think about, and, and, and there have been certainly since Bing Crosby and besides Mariah Carey, there's been others who've made the top 20 list of Christmas songs. Justin Bieber's on that list. Pentatonics is on that list. We've been singing Feliz Navidad, right? Um, rocking around the Christmas tree. All of those are in the top 20. But if you think about sort of that litany of Christmas songs, if I was to take that auditory experience and visualize it, it's kind of like watching a fountain of water that just keeps getting recycled over and over. Contrastingly, when we consider the incarnation, Athanasius, one of the church fathers from the ancient world, uh, the fourth century church father from North Africa, to whom the church universal is indebted for his work in helping to codify uh, some of our creedal statements around the nature of who Jesus Christ is and his personhood, he says to the effect, considering the incarnation is like looking at the ocean and trying to count all the waves. 
all the waves of blessing that are caught up in it. And even as it would seem, we've been looking at the same text for the last two weeks. This is the third week in a row. It would seem, well, there's just a limit to how much we could glean from it. It's like staring at the ocean. There are so many good things that we can pull from the incarnation of our Lord and what it means to us. But we're still only looking at a few. This week, so we, we, we started off, we talked about um, how he was born of the Holy Spirit, you know, that creedal statement in the, in the Apostles' Creed, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Last week, Pastor John preached on that. This week, we are, I'm entitling this, He Came to Save. Because if you think about it, after the creed, it says, you know, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, he was born of the Virgin Mary, and then it starts talking about all of his work, of what he did to save us. He was suffered under Pontius Pilate, he was crucified, died, buried, the third day he descended to hell, the third day he rose again from the, the grave, he's ascended into heaven, he's going to return. All of that we could say he saved us. And that's what the text is saying, why he came. That's what we're focusing on this morning. And so here's three things that I want us to see from this text this morning. Number one, his better ministry and why that impacts us, gives us confidence. Number two, his perfect mediation, why we needed that and we can hope in it. And lastly, his glorious motivation and how we can glory in it. His better ministry, his perfect mediation, his glorious motivation. Let's consider his better ministry. Okay, one of the amazing points of this story is an angel has to intervene for Joseph, right? Because, of course, Joseph, he knows the woman to whom he's engaged is pregnant, and he knows that's not his baby, and he's the one to divorce her but do so quietly. And so God has to intervene by sending an angel. It's the angel of the Lord. Now, the angel in Luke's account gets introduced as Gabriel, but certainly... In this account, an angel of the Lord is the moniker, so to speak. It reminds us of many of the Old Testament encounters that God's people would have with the angel of the Lord. One of which, of note, comes from Judges when Samson is born. Similar situation in a sense. God's people are being uh, put down and oppressed, this time in that case by the Philistines, presently in this story, the Romans. And God says, I'm going to send the deliverer, and he sends this angel, and he appears. The angel of the Lord appears to Manoah's wife and then to Manoah. And there's all this specificity that the angel gives about what the mom can't eat or drink and what the baby can't eat and drink and what he's going to be and the vow he's going to make. But he never tells, the angel never says, here's what you have to name him. And what's interesting about this story, it says that in verse 20, behold, he considered these things, Joseph did. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The angel tells the name of the baby. It's not, in other words, it's not up to the parents. I'm, God himself has named this child. What's the significance of that? Well, it's, it's pointing to a lot of things, but this morning, one of the things is it's pointing to his better ministry. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, let's think about what the name means, Jesus. Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua, means the Lord saves. 
So we get in the meaning of the name, the mission of the child, but by the fact that he is named after another figure already named in the Old Testament, Joshua, there's some relevance to how their ministries uh, impact one another or are compared and contrasted to one another. And in fact, when you look at Matthew's account of Jesus, he really in many ways fulfills both Moses's and Joshua's ministries, but is a better Moses and a better Joshua. And here's, here's what I mean. You see, see, God, the scripture is telling us here is how God deals with humanity, how he deals with his people. He deals with them. One of the ways he deals with them is he sends a deliverer. He sends someone to rescue them because, because of our sinfulness, we get ourselves into problems and trouble, and the Lord allows us to have at whatever it is that we're after. But then after we realize the pain of that, he sends someone to deliver us. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel, they were enslaved in Egypt, and God sent Moses to deliver them out of slavery and lead them into the wilderness. Well, Matthew clearly shows Jesus has lots of overlap with Moses. Moses was born and there was an infanticide, kill all of the Israelite boys. Jesus is born and there's an infanticide. Here it says, kill all of the boys born in that region. Moses comes out of Egypt. Jesus and his family go down and come out of Egypt. Moses goes into the wilderness. Jesus goes into the wilderness. Moses goes up on the mountain, hears God's law, comes down and preaches the law to the people. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 goes up on the mountain and preaches the law to his people. There's a comparison between Moses and Jesus as well as by name Joshua and Jesus. But Jesus is a better Moses and a better Joshua. He has a better ministry. Well, how is that? Well, Moses delivers God's people out of Egypt successfully and into the wilderness. But Moses himself never makes it into the promised land. Job's not fully finished. And Joshua, who carries on from where Moses left off, and God says, I'm going to be with you like I was with Moses. Joshua successfully leads God's people into the promised land. But in Joshua's generation... They don't wipe out all the enemies. And those enemies and their gods become a snare to God's people in the ensuing generations. And so they don't finish the job either. But Jesus Christ comes. He successfully delivers his people out of slavery. He successfully leads you through this wilderness world of the inter-advent period from where he first came until where he returns. We are in a wilderness, yet he leads us faithfully. He's our good shepherd. And he will faithfully lead us into the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth when he restores all things. Jesus has a better ministry. And even as we're in the, we're, we're in the wilderness, this gives us hope. And we're in this in-between time, the first advent and the second advent. And as, as, as John the Apostle, as he writes Revelation, he talks about how this is a wilderness that we are in. The questions of the wilderness are, Lord, how long? Lord, why do I have to go through this? Why does this keep happening? I can't, I can't believe this just happened. 
and on and on. Those are the questions of our wilderness experience. Yet in that we have hope because Jesus has a better ministry. He will finish in you what he has started. So that's, that's his ministry. His ministry is definitive. It's absolute. He absolutely leads you out of slavery. He absolutely leads you through the wilderness, and he will absolutely lead you into the final rest, his promised land. But let's consider his perfect mediation. So we we got all that from the name, Jesus. But what does it say right after Jesus and gives even further underscoring his point for coming. It says, in verse 21, she'll bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for, in other words, because he will save his people from their sins. He's a perfect mediator. But here's the catch. Herein lies our greatest deception, but also in here is revealed his greatest mission or his great mission. What do I mean? All right. You ever given a gift to somebody and they kind of look at you like, uh, I don't, I don't need that. I I remember a few years ago I was in my, in our church staff. Um, I didn't see the gift exchange, but one pastor gave another, uh, this other, this woman on our staff gave her this book that was about overcoming intimidation. And she's kind of like, so what are you saying? And in order for her to read that, there has to be internally at least some admission. Okay, maybe, okay, okay, maybe I do have an issue here. Maybe I do have a complex here. I, I, I remember another instance on our staff, and, you know, we live in the city. It's a city that never sleeps, and so, you know, people in ministry kind of act like that too. And, uh, and, and I remember telling... Uh, some of the pastors on our staff, we had this guest preacher come, and he actually wrote some books, and I said, you might want to read this book. It's about not being too busy. Well, one of the pastors is like, well, you know, actually, I don't have time to read it. Can you just summarize it for me? <laughs> so I'm like, uh, that's my point. <laughs> and then another pastor was like, um, he just kind of looked at me. and was like, I don't need that. Maybe you try to intervene in somebody's life and you're telling them it's a loved one, stop, you stop working so much, or maybe, you know, someone is in their golden years, you need to stop driving or take better care of your health or whatever the case is, and you get that, I don't need to listen to that. That's not where I am, right? See, what that is is actually just a microcosm of our human response to what Jesus came to do. You see, because the reality is it says the, the thing that the Scripture tells us the reason why the incarnation happens, the Scripture knows no other reason for the incarnation except that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. But as we dig into that, we say, I don't really need that, Lord. I, I just need a little push. I just need a little extra you know, I, I, I know I, I mess up sometimes. I just, need a, I just need a little bit. I don't need you to come and actually die. Uh, we respond, I don't, we're not that bad off. It's our greatest deception. Uh, here's what the great British preacher David Martin Lloyd-Jones says about our self-deception around sin. He says this, he said this, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you 
as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves, and we can always put up a good case for ourselves. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that the nature of sin is such that you actually don't even see it in yourself. You don't, it's easy to see in other people, but when confronted, you're like, no, that's not me. I, Jesus, I don't really need that. I, you know, just a little bit of help. Not, and it's, the nature of that is described in the scripture. One of the ways it's described is it's blindness. Sin is a, it's a spiritual blindness, and therefore we can't see. And so our response to the nature of this being the central message and the reason why Jesus came, he was incarnate, is, well, you know, I could just lead a moral life because, of course, it's the immoral people that are the problem in the world. Or I could just be a devout religious person because it's the unreligious people who are the problem or non-religious. I'll be generous because the people that are the problem in the world is the stingy people. I'll work hard because the real problem is the lazy people, or I'll be an activist because the real problem is the passive people. Yet the incarnation, the advent of our Lord says, it communicates to us the greatest problem of humanity is that we are all sinners. That is the only reason Jesus came, was to save his people from their sins. And in that, it reveals Jesus' great mission. He shows us that it's not simply a societal issue, the greatest issues of our, our day. It's not an environmental issue, primarily. Our greatest issue of our, our day is not educational or economic. And it's not even moral in the sense of how we can't get along. I mean, we could say, well, just, you know, look at social media, what it's done, and how it's just fed into these different ideologies and how we can't talk in, you know, there's Washington gridlock and we can't talk about anything without it going political. But our greatest problem is not even our moral disrepute towards one another. It's not sexism or racism or xenophobia or wokeism or nationalism. Our greatest problem is our moral conflict with the creator. You see, we see glory, status, security, comfort, peace, identity from created things rather than the creator. And in fact, even good things that we do, like working hard, like being a moral person, like having a strong family or whatever the case is, is, a, is an attempt to justify our existence rather than receiving the one given to us in Christ. Our greatest issue, our greatest problem is our sin. It's what separated us from the Lord. Isaiah 59 verses 1 through 2 says that the Lord's hand is not too short to save, nor is his ear too dull to hear, but it is our iniquities that have separated us from him. That's our greatest problem. It's our greatest deception, but it's our greatest problem. But in that is Jesus is revealing God's great work. Part of our rejection to fully embracing, like, we are really that bad off, Jesus. It took you, it took the Son of God to become man, to come down, to, to be born uh, in a lowly place and live this life that's seemingly insignificant and then be crucified, suffer and crucify. It took all of that just to deal with my issues. Part of our objection, it's like, it's like my former coworker. If I read this book, I'm admitting maybe I do have an issue with being intimidated by others. 
if we fully embrace this, we have to admit, yeah, you know what? I am, I am that needy. I am that bad off. You, you are that needy. You are that bad off. But part of our objection might be, you know, if I really embrace that reality, it might sink me so low. I'll have, I'll have no self-esteem. I'll have no, I'll have no positive view of anything. I'll just be so weighed down by the reality of how sinful I am. Maybe that's our objection. And so, therefore, if I could just trick myself into thinking all I need is a little extra push, and if I'm, I, can, I can sort of justify my own life by all these other means, working hard or making good grades or, you know, whatever it is, being a good family person, I'll be okay. But the challenge is, is if when we justify ourselves, when are we ever done? There's no peace in that. There's no assurance in that, and it's only in leads to further anxiety. Yet, if we trust in the fact that we needed someone to save us, namely Jesus, the only one who could, and he came to do that, it's only then if we receive that gift, if we open the book, so to speak, and start reading it, like my colleague did, it's only in that we can have true hope. You see... As it says clearly, Jesus didn't just come to offer a way of salvation. The angels didn't say, you know, he's going to come and he's going to tell you all the instructions to be saved. No, it says, she will bear a son, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save. Salvation belongs to him. He will save his people from their sins. Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, I, I didn't see it in the 80s or, or the 90s. Or I actually just saw it, like, this summer. Um, yeah, sorry. It's been out for a while. But anyways, when they're in the Temple of Doom and, the you know, the female actor, Willie, she gets, she gets in that contraption and she's dangling over the hot, molten, you know, lava thing where they sacrifice people. Um, you remember that? Uh, and, 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 and so um, Indiana Jones, he's in this trance, and he gets broken out of the trance by that, the kid, and then he comes. So, so she's going to die, right? Indiana Jones doesn't get up to the crevice of this pit and, and, and say, hey, I figured out how to get you out. Let me tell you the instructions. Just follow my prompt. That's not what he does. That's not salvation. That's, hey, I got a plan, and here you're going to do it. That's not what Jesus does either. When he died on the cross, he saved his people. He did it. Salvation belongs to him. We get to respond to what he's done. Indiana Jones saved Willie. Jesus Christ came not to tell us instructions about how we can be saved. He came to save us. God reconciles his people, even though we don't know how bad off we are and try to ignore it or pretend we're not, and even though we are at enmity in with him because of all the things that we've put in his place, he solves the problem by putting all of that on his son to be our sacrifice. And as a result, we don't end up in groveling and self-pity 
and low self-esteem because the Apostle Paul reminds us, 1 Timothy, 5, 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 17, it won't be on your screen, but in 1 Timothy 1, 15 uh, through 17, Paul says, he says, it is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And Paul says, he did that for me to show his perfect patience and how he would reach me, who was a violent persecutor and a blasphemer. And Paul doesn't end that comment with, and how bad am I? He ends that comment in doxology, how great he is, the Lord. Oh, the King eternal, invisible. He begins his doxology. When we fully embrace that Jesus Christ is the perfect mediator, he gave perfect mediation, it doesn't make us grovel or end in low self-esteem. We really embrace who we were and how bad off we are. The, the gospel shows us that we are more sinful than we could have ever imagined. It reveals that we are more loved than we could have ever hoped for. It leads us to glory. That brings us to the last point, his motivation. His motivation. Why did he do this? You see, because the temptation is for us to view God because he's invisible for us, to view him as, well, he does things, but he feels nothing, right? He's there, but he's not really there. He's kind of way out there somewhere, distant. And some of that has to do with perhaps, well, there's a lot of factors, but it could be perhaps people in our life and key moments of our upbringing who would have been sort of human examples for us about the nature of God themselves maybe were emotionally distant. You know, it could be just misunderstanding things from a theological perspective. I mean, you know, you think about literature, for example, or not even literature, just even in our common vernacular, we talk about um, uh, old man winter or mother nature, these uh, anthropomorphisms. And scripture has those. We know that the God is spirit, but he is, we speak of him with these human terms. And in you know, theological circles, there can be statements about how we speak of God and his emotions in those terms too, but it could lead us to think, well, there, he doesn't really emote, which is not true. It, there's, the difference is God doesn't, he never lost his temper, but our emotions definitely came from him. He's never, he's never been unjust in how he's emoted. He's not capricious. He's not wishy-washy. He doesn't have good days and bad days. But he most certainly does have desires. Psalm 132. It talks about how, I was reading this this week, and it talks about how it's reflecting on how King David, King David, if you're familiar with his life, he's a great king, great warrior, he really wanted God's presence to be, in, be near. And he said, I'm not going to sleep. I'm not going to go to bed. I'm not going to lay down until I build a house for God. And of course, if you know the story, God says, no, you're not building a house for me, but your son will. And it, it makes this clear statement. David, he desired God to be near. And of course, why not? He's king. If God's near me and I'm king, I get protection. I get provision. I get wisdom. You know, David get all these things. And of course, you know, intimacy of relationship. 
But in that same psalm, it says, God says, I desired to dwell there. What does God get? We get protection. God desires, he's Emmanuel, God with us. That's, that's really the, the basis for our third point. He's, he, the, 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 the angel is, actually, this is Matthew's wrapping this all up, and he's saying this all took place. Verse 22, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. What is God's motivation that he would become man to be with us? I mean, we get so much, but what does he get? He needs nothing. He's been in perfect relationship for all of eternity. What does he get? What does he need? He needs nothing. We need protection. We need provision. We need counsel. We need wisdom. He needs none of those things. What does he receive? He gets you. He treasures you. He values you. And in fact, he wants to be near you. I mean, I think about as a, as a husband and a dad, I enjoy being near my wife. Becca, I enjoy being near my kids. And though positionally, you know, say for my kids and I, I am over them, but still even being near them, there's mutual receptivity. I mean, I enjoy their company. When you think about people that we could be near, it can fill voids, you know, loneliness or a sense of uh, comfort. Maybe they get comfort from being near me or a sense of protection or strength or what have you. But in our being near God, there's not that same mutuality. I receive something from him, but he has nothing that he needs, yet he desires to dwell with us. Why? Because he wants to pour out his love on you. Emmanuel, God with us, it's so deep, and Jesus came so near that he not only wants to be with you at your strongest, at your bravest, at your highest, he wants to be with you at your weakest, at your lowest. Let me show you. Hebrews 2.18 says this. You'll see it on the screen talking about Jesus. For because he himself has suffered when he tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because he suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. You ever gone through something and you tell people about it, you know, you tell your friends about it, you tell your neighbors about it, you tell your coworkers about it, but they don't fully get it until you meet that person who went through it too. And you're like, you get it. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, had to become man so that he could fully get temptation. God's not tempted by anything in his divine nature. And remember, Jesus has two natures. He is fully human, fully divine. As God, he's not tempted, but as man, he was tempted in all ways like us. So he gets you. Jesus, mind you, you know, when God created Adam, Adam was a man. He was never, you know, dependent on any other human beings. He was alone for so long or however long. Who knows? Um, Jesus was born a baby. He entered into the most weak state of humanity, completely dependent on parents and nurturing and care and protection and provision and all of those things. Not born in a palace, born in, you know, stable and laying in hay and all of those things. Why? So he could experience the lowest state. 
not the highest state of humanity, the lowest state, so that no matter what you've gone through, no matter what you're tempted by, no matter what suffering you're enduring, he's, you can look to him and he says, I know. I've been there. And not only that, he's able to help you when you're tempted. In verse, or Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, the last scripture here on the screen, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so here's the prompt. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. You see, this is what the incarnation provided for you. Because Jesus experienced weakness, his disposition to you is sympathy in your weakness, pain, suffering, loss, mourning. And even in your sin, if you are a Christian, See, we know theologically that God, our sin has separated us from God. As a Christian, because you belong to him, even in your sin, Jesus comes near to you. He hates the sin, but he is compassionate on you. Our response is, oh, Lord, oh, or even just put him aside. Let me clean myself up or let me get whatever rectified or change this or fix this and then come back. But no. Even in that state, Jesus comes to you to help you, to offer you grace, because he is Emmanuel. For a Christian, he is Emmanuel, God with you, not simply when you're at your strongest and best, but at your weakest, lowest, worst, wit's end, most tempted, and most dire. He is God with you. Emmanuel. Let's pray. Father, even as we approach your word and hear these things from your spirit, it can even still be hard to believe it, that you would view us this way. And that's because we view ourselves through our own lens. Yet it's in your word. You call us to view you through the lens, not of our brokenness, but of through who you are. The, the incarnate Christ, God and man reconciled in one person with a mission and a ministry to reconcile us back to you. And Lord, because of who you are and for what you have done, we have hope and confidence. And I pray, Lord, that that would enable us to hear this message, to hear these words and receive comfort and encouragement and by faith believe what you have said and done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.